If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review, or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible. The Terrifying Lies podcast, with music and stories by Craig Nibo. Greetings, friends, and welcome to the Terrifying Lies podcast, where the winds be ever at your back, but Neptune's fury be your doom. I'm your host, Craig Nibo. Today's story is the conclusion of a four-part series. If you haven't listened to the former episodes, I encourage you to go back and tune in. Otherwise, you might find yourself a bit perplexed. Today's story is based on a game I designed called Chops, the rock and roll board game. The story's characters, venues, and more appear in the game. If you want to live the adventure, you can pick up a copy of Chops on my website at craignibo.com. The story so far. Blunderbusted, a band booked on an extended engagement aboard a tall sailing ship festooned with what can only be pirates, has played their first set with a new singer, Melody Blackheart. To the band's delight, the ship's swarthy crowd of seafaring cutthroats drank, frolicked, and danced to the music. All seems well, but rough waters lie ahead for the filthy vicar, her crew, and blunderbusted. Will they make it back to port, or will the rolls and swells of the sea swallow them up, putting their rock and roll career to an unexpected end? You can only find out by listening to the conclusion of Blunderbusted. I now give you Blunderbusted, part four of four, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. When the band hit the quarterdeck again after their break, they noticed that a force mightier than the carnal need to party had derailed the celebration. Most of the seamen and women had gathered along the port railings and were staring into the open ocean. Barry followed their gaze and caught a glimpse of what had attracted their attention. A cargo ship moved in the distance, not one of the enormous barges he had seen coming into the ports of New York and New Jersey. This barge was not a quarter of the size of those gigantic vessels. It didn't bear the logo of the major shipping companies least the household names that Barry knew. In fact, the vessel bore no markings at all. He settled down behind his drum kit and looked to the others for a sign of what to do. The show had gone well thus far. He hoped they could pry the midshipman's eyes away from the distant cargo liner for another installment of the filthy vicar's infinite party. Just as Melody indicated for Barry and Dusty to get ready to kick off the set, Captain Frank Farkle appeared on the quarterdeck, climbing up one of the ladders from below. He unhooked the barker from its mizzen-mast nail and raised it to his lips. Attention, all hands! Everyone turned to face the captain. The crew seemed anxious. They dug in pockets to keep their hands busy. They fingered various pieces of jewelry. Some paced back and forth in sharp, confined spaces. Many stood hard with their jaws set and unflinching. They all had one thing in common. They wanted to hear what Captain Farkle had to say. By now! It has become obvious that opportunity has shown its crown to us. For the last four hours, first mate Mr. Quick has had his eyes on a prize, a small freight liner off the port beam. You've all seen it. She's making her way toward New York outside the shipping lanes, and she has no markings. My suspicion is that she belongs to our friend, Thomas Surhan. 
A swell of growls and spitting came from the crew. Melody saw more than one of them punch his palm in defiance. The good news is this. Mr. Seren's cargo liner seems to be pregnant with what can only be a hearty shipment of black market merchandise. My kind-hearted nature usually causes me to say, Mi casa es tu casa. But with respect to Mr. Serand, today I am saying, Tu casa es mi casa. The crowd cheered, pumping fists, slapping fives, beating chests, spinning circles in ecstasy. Captain Farkle panned the deck until he spotted Adam Quick standing near the port railing, his tattooed shoulders jutting from his leather vest. Mr. Quick, Captain Farkle said through the barker, please set course in pursuit of Mr. Surhan. The crew exploded into another peal of cheering. Captain Farkle handed the barker to Melody Blackheart with a wink. Knock him dead. I know we will. She offered a cock-sided smile and a single raised eyebrow. Captain Frank Farkle slid down the ladder from the quarterdeck back down to the spar deck to join his crew. Melody pointed at Barry Guns, who leaned into a fresh groove, something basic and heavy, no frills. Melody pointed at Dusty Cannons, who put her own flavor on the groove with an interesting counterbeat. Melody raised the barker to her lips and began rapping. Port beam bounty sits in the offing, flagmast skeleton hoisted for bagging, gets the battle ready for ramming, daggering, sorting, shooting, and axing. The audience accepted her rhymes with a wave of cheering. She continued laying down more stanzas of verse. On occasion, she ceased her rapping and went into sung bridges and improvised choruses. She used repetitive phrases that the crew could memorize in an instant and chant back at her. The filthy vicar made a 45-degree turn to port, and her engines accelerated to full ahead. The jounce in speed took the band by surprise, causing Dusty to nearly fall off her drum throne. The engines Captain Farkle's father had installed had enough horsepower to push the old wooden bark at unexpected speed. Dusty recovered and laid back into her groove. As Blunderbusted rocked on, the crew seemed to draw motivation from the music, whipping themselves up into a form of pre-battle hysteria. Crewmen and women drew weapons from unseen sheets and holsters. One of the crew fired a nickel-plated Remington 1911, probably a Filipino knockoff, into the air. Others followed suit. The ship became a din of aimless firing, dancing, blade swinging, and shouting. The filthy vicar closed on Captain Sirhan's cargo cruiser faster than Melody could have imagined. The band hadn't finished their 45-minute set before she could make out the name on the cargo liner. The Satisfaction. A line of blocked letters read along the bow. Melody made out a collection of crewmen along the Satisfaction's railing. Farkle's crew became more antsy as the ship's closed distance. Someone from the Satisfaction fired a weapon. Melody barely recognized the pop as a gunshot. A bullet thunked into the mizzen mast, which stood between the two drum sets. Melody fell off a rhyming for a moment and looked over her shoulder at the smoking hole the bullet had made. She heard chattering from the spar deck and looked down to see a handful of crewmen pointing and laughing at her. She tightened her fists and squinted her eyes in the face of their mockery. She raised the barker to her mouth and wrapped another stanza. Tongues and leash become tongues in pieces. When the girl draws a blade from her tongue valises, they won't keep cool in the glare of the sun, but she might lay them out to bleach just for fun. The clot of crewmen laughed even harder, nodding their approval and raising their fists in salute. Melody saluted back and kept the rhymes going. She went into a sung chorus over the drummed groove. Slicing through the open water Arming for the curling banner Baiting carve the winning briny Bagging hurl the axe 
Pac-Man Army. More shots cracked, both from the filthy vicar and the satisfaction. New holes appeared in the masts and rigging. A bullet thunked into Dusty's floor tom, causing an ugly out-of-rhythm thud. She pushed away from her kit, left the stool and ran for a pile of crates near the ship's wheel. Barry glanced over his shoulder at her, eyes wide, wanting more than anything to dive from his drum set for cover. But two fears beset him. He feared the shots ringing out and the ever-nearing drones of the angry crew lined along the rails of the satisfaction. Even more, he feared the wrath of Captain Frank Farkle should he default on his contract. He hadn't lost sight of the captain. The man stood taller than most of his crew and had joined the ranks of the front of the assail. He held a pistol in one hand and a cutlass in the other. A wide grin exposed his teeth as the filthy vicar closed ranks with the satisfaction. It'd be minutes before the fight would ensue in earnest. Melody ran to the stack of crates near the wheel and grabbed Dusty by the hand. Get back to your kit. We have to see this through. I don't care about the money. Honey, I played rougher gigs in my day. You heard of a joint called the Wrecking Hall? These are just a bunch of peacocks. Melody thumbed over her shoulder at the Royal crew, all juiced up for a fight. If we're going to be in the same band, you need to pull your weight, girl. An inch at a time, Dusty stood up. In a crouched scurry, she moved across the quarterdeck to her kit. She sat down, drew a pair of sticks, kicked into the groove. That a girl, Melody said, patting her on the shoulder. Dusty shot up a wary smile and kept playing. Melody stepped to the front of the quarterdeck and raised the barker for another verse. Just before the filthy vicar slammed headlong into the side of the satisfaction, the wheelman cranked the tiller. The ship made a wild, sideways maneuver, a maneuver that it couldn't have possibly made in its 18th century prime, and slid sideways into the cargo ship. Everybody lurched forward on impact. Most of the crew had found purchase by grabbing something, a rail, a mast, a piece of tied-down equipment, but many of them toppled to the ground in a crush of bodies and a clatter of weapons. Barry's drum kit went over, betrayed by the nail and hemp support system he'd used to batten it down. He hadn't planned on a flat-out assault when he had tied up his kit. His drums fell out of their stands and rolled toward the railings. He dove to save them and managed to hook his bass, snare, and auxiliary rack, but all three of his toms clattered over the side and fell into the ocean far below. He pushed what he had rescued back toward the center of the quarter deck and looked over the rail. Three of his custom-built drums bobbed in the surf. There's no time for this, Melody said, suddenly at Barry's shoulder. Fix what you have and keep going. Barry steeled his jaw. He worked quickly to assemble what was left of his drum set. When he was finished, he noticed that his drum throne had also made its escape into the sea. He panned the quarter deck and found a squat keg. He ran to it, rolled it up to the back of his kit, and sat down. He raised his sticks and played. Melody kept the rhymes fresh, panning the barker back and forth across the seamen and women. Several of the filthy vicar's crew had thrown hemp and grappling hooks over the deck to hook the rails of the satisfaction. Captain Sirhan's crew worked at cutting the ropes and throwing the hooks overboard, but they couldn't get through all of the tossed lines. Heave! Someone yelled with a scorched-out throat. Those who had lines pulled. Foot by foot, the filthy vicar closed the gap until the ships became a single Siamese twin ocean barge. Crew from the filthy vicar jumped over the railings to board the cargo liner. Shots cracked off and blades flashed as combat ensued. The band played on, keeping it fast and current as the seamen and women battled it out. Another bullet hit the front of the stage just below where Melody stood. She ignored the shot and kept her eyes up. Barker pressed to her lips. Her rhymes weren't perfect. She lost some of her form in the guts of excitement, but she wasn't the only one distracted. 
Though the crew had left the dance floor, they continued to engage in a dance of sorts, a dance of blood, grime, and force. The fighting lasted for nearly an hour. Blunderbusted kept playing. When the fighting lulled, they slowed the beat and became more reflective in their grooves. When the heat of the battle cranked up, they hiked the tempo and slammed louder. Melody kept on rhyming, smooth and consistent, like silk. Finally, except for occasional aftermath skirmishes, the battle ended. Most of the fighting had occurred on the main deck of the Satisfaction. Captain Farkle's crew had dispatched and thrown overboard any members of Captain Sirhan's crew who had been unfortunate enough to board the Filthy Vicar. After a sense of stability returned to the Filthy Vicar, Captain Farkle appeared, standing high on the bridge of the Satisfaction. He waved his cutlass in the air and fired his pistol a few times. All hail! He shouted. All hands flagged off from what they were doing and looked up at their captain. Captain Farkle raised his cutlass. The satisfaction is ours! The crew of the filthy vicar erupted into a cheer, clanking their weapons and stomping on the deck, all eyes on their captain, high up on the roof of their prize's bridge. And behold! Captain Farkle said. He bent and drew up the end of a piece of hemp. With a mighty tug, he dragged Captain Thomas Sirhan up to his standing position. Sirhan had his hands tied behind his back and bit on a gag, taped to his mouth with a length of duct tape. The crew cheered again. Captain Farkle looked across the ships at Melody. The band had stopped playing while the captain addressed the crew. Play something fit for this mongrel to crowd surf to. Melody nodded. She snapped off a tempo. She eyed the crew and gestured for them to follow her lead. One by one, the crew of the Filthy Vicar raised their hands and snapped along until the whole ship became energized with the pulsing clicks of hundreds of fingers. Melody turned to Dusty. Lay it on him, girl. Dusty played something on her four toms, a bouncy beat that ran up and down the stairway of her drums. Barry let the groove settle in for a few bars, then joined up with something hard and driving on his kick and snare. The beat felt tough and mean. Melody raised the barker and chanted something that spread rapidly across the audience. Surf, sir, hand, stomp, stomp, stomp. Surf, sir, hand, stomp, stomp, stomp. Soon everyone chanted and stomped, even the captain, high up on the cabin of the satisfaction. Farkle dragged his captured enemy to the edge of the cabin and pointed down at the crew below. Unable to speak through the gag, Captain Sirhan shook his head back and forth in a mad plea to let him go. Captain Frank Farkle wasn't listening. He shoved Captain Sirhan hard. The man caught himself by the hip on the railing and barely avoided going over the edge. Farkle raised his cutlass and edged closer to Sirhan. He put the tip of the blade on the man's sternum, then flicked his eyes downward toward the crew, who stood on the deck with their hands stretched upward, ready to receive their fallen quarry. Captain Sirhan nodded, squinting his eyes at his captor. He rocked backwards. Gravity took him, and he fell into the arms of a hundred men and women. They caught him before he hit the deck. Belly up, lying on his back, Sirhan was helpless in so many enemy hands. With the chant and stomping and beat coming from the quarter deck as their accompaniment, the crew of the Filthy Vicar passed Captain Thomas Sirhan overhead. He surfed over the crowd, powered by a thousand hands, closer and closer to the edge of his own ship. He writhed and twisted, trying to regain control as he saw himself getting closer to the aft railing. In the end, a thousand hands tossed him over the edge. He gyrated as he fell to the water, slapping down in a painful sideways flop. The crew exploded into a celebratory cry when their enemy hit the surf. Melody cued the drummers into something fast. They changed the beat, and she opened up with another round of rapping. 
The crew danced wherever they stood, on the deck of the filthy vicar, on the deck of the satisfaction. They kicked their feet and bounced to the beat, exuding a wash of triumph in the face of their hard-earned victory. The band played the groove for another three minutes before wrapping it up with a hyper-extended rock and roll stage ending. After a final thunk of the drums accompanied by one of Melody's signature screams, the audience gave it up again, louder than ever. Whistling and banging, the applause lasted nearly two minutes before it flagged off. Melody Blackheart raised the barker to her lips. Thank you very much, and good night. The crowd cheered again as Blunderbusted left the stage one by one by way of the trap door in the quarterdeck floor. Filthy Vicar spent the remainder of the afternoon and evening looting the satisfaction. Barry, Dusty, and Melody sat on a collection of wooden deck chairs that were fastened to the spar deck and watched the crew work. They hauled hundreds of cases of what looked like monitor lizards, monkeys, sloths, and exotic birds from the satisfaction onto their own ship. They loaded hosts of unmarked cartons, a few of which they cut open on the deck of the Filthy Vicar. There were guns, white rhino horns, ivory, cigars, even women's clothing. Not a bad day's work, a voice said from behind the band. They all looked over their shoulders and spotted Captain Frank Farkle, a new wound on the side of his face, deep by the looks of it, tended to and taped up with strips. Why the animals? Dusty asked, gesturing toward a group of men carrying cages of enormous lizards. Monitor lizards make great pets, Captain Farkle said, and people pay top dollar for them. Dusty smirked. And as agreed for your support, and under our standing contract, you're entitled to a fair percentage of the proceeds. Barry smiled at the captain, but none of the band said anything more to him. Captain Farkle stalked off, shouting something at a group of men who were about to drop a voluminous crate full of loot. I don't know how I feel about taking this money, Dusty said. There might be enough in this to fund a pretty significant East Coast tour, Melody said. Might be just what we need to get blunderbusted on the map. It's a hundred dollar bill, Barry said and we just found it on the sidewalk. The band sat on their deck chairs, watching the crew work for another two hours before they finally went to their cabins for some much-needed rest. Captain Frank Farkle ordered the filthy vicar further out to sea in hopes of gaining more booty. For two more days, she plunged forward using her state-of-the-art engines, for two more nights, Blunderbusted played shows that brought everyone to its feet for more drinking, dancing, and celebration. They were already rich on the loot they'd taken from the satisfaction. Anything more would be icing. As the mid-afternoon sun beat down on the hardwood spar deck, in the middle of the harshest part of the day when the hottest shift worked the rigging, the engines ceased again, this time with a cacophony of metallic clanking and black smoke. The engines came to a whining stop before the mechanics could get to them and shut them down. Melody, Dusty, and Barry had been sunbathing in their usual deck chairs when the clatter broke free. 
They looked aft and saw a black plume of ruin ascending from the exhaust ports and knew, even being novices to the workings of engines, that the motors had been damaged, possibly beyond repair. All hands hooked up buckets and dipped them into troughs of seawater, kept in on-deck tanks. They ran with their buckets aft and dropped them into the engine room by way of a hatch that led below. Within moments, the midshipmen had formed a fire brigade line and were passing buckets of water from one to another across and below deck. Captain Farkle came out of his cabin and climbed up to the quarter deck to watch his men and women work. He kept his brows low. Maybe it was a trick of the light, but Melody thought he looked older up there on his high perch, fists on his hips, staring down at the fire brigade. She got up from her deck chair and walked aft to the base of the quarter deck. Dusty and Barry looked at each other as she walked away. Permission to come up? Melody shouted to Captain Farkle. He looked down at her, his face drawn, his jowls hanging at his chin, perhaps a bit more loosely than usual. Over the past few days of the voyage, Melody had visited him often, asking questions about the old ship and about his life as a sailor. She'd gotten to know the man on a level that pierced through all of the rancor that he put on for his crew. She recognized concern in his face and hoped that she could somehow bring him a taste of solace. Granted, he said without conviction. Melody climbed the ladder and moved to his side. She watched the crew work, their faces besmirched with soot and sweat as they passed load after load of seawater along their line. If you don't mind my asking, Melody asked, how serious is it this time? Captain Farkle looked up at the sky, squinting against the constant onslaught of the sun. He moved, pacing to the wheel and back, touching the mizzen mast as he walked by in both directions. I'm afraid she has a broken heart. Melody ran her fingers through her hair a couple of times as she watched the crew work. She looked up at the tall captain. What can I do? It's a matter for the mechanics, he said. He stood his full height and put his hands on his hips. Keep at it, lads and lasses, he shouted. It's two weeks' voyage by sail from here if we have no engines. Can I bring you anything? Melody said, not knowing how else she could help. Captain Farkle donned a fatherly smile on his stubble-speckled chin. Perhaps you should return to your own crew. He appeared to be a bit out of sorts. He aimed his chin toward Dusty and Barry. Barry stood next to his deck chair, visoring away the sun from his eyes with a flatted hand, staring up at Melody and the captain on the quarterdeck. Dusty sat on her chair, elbows on knees, head in hands. Aye, Captain, Melody said. She descended the ladder and went back to the other musicians. They listened with grave expressions as Melody reported what the captain had said. So how long are we stuck out here? Barry asked. I guess two weeks if they can't get the engines in order, Melody said. Let's just hope these pirates know how to sail, Barry said, pointing up at the furrowed sheets on the yards. The Coast Guard finds us adrift and checks our hold. Might as well learn how to play the Folsom Prison Blues. I don't think it'll come to that, Melody said as she sat down on her deck chair and picked up a bottle of suntan oil. She rubbed some on her arms and lay back on her chair. How can you just lie there when there's no assurance that we're ever going to make it home? Melody dipped her sunglasses and looked up at Barry. Come what may, brother, there's always a solution. Barry folded his arms and huffed. You might as well relax. There's nothing we can do. The three musicians remained on deck for another hour, watching the crew work. In time, the fire brigade stopped passing buckets and went back to work on menial tasks, ship repairs, swabbing, maintenance. It all looked like busy work to Barry. Captain Farkle left the quarterdeck and went to his cabin. A group of grimy men came out of the engine room and walked to the captain's cabin door. The mechanics, Melody assumed. The captain admitted them. Melody kept an eye on the door and marked the time. After three quarters of an hour, the men came out, hats in hands. The captain looked more grave than ever. 
Melody reclined back into her deck chair and pursed her lips in thought. After a moment, she snapped her fingers and sat up on the edge of her chair. The greased beast, she said to the others. Was that the first big gig you guys ever played? That's right. Before the greased beast, it was all coffee houses and dives, Dusty said. Melody stood up. I have an idea. Come with me. Without an explanation, she walked away. Barry and Dusty rose from their deck chairs and followed her, passing occasional sideways glances at each other. Melody led them to the captain's cabin. She raised her hand to knock. Barry caught her by the wrist just before she thunked the wood. I'm not sure if this is a good idea. Captain Farkle doesn't seem to be in any mood to talk to us right now. I didn't get where I am by hesitating when opportunity knocks. Now I'm the one doing the knocking. Can you trust me on this? Barry pursed his lips and let her wrist go. Melody knocked on the hard wood. Who's there? Captain Farkle said. It's the band, Melody said. Not now. I think I have a solution for your dilemma. What do you know about how to run a ship? I don't know anything about running a ship. Do you know anything about running a venue? What? Just let us in. Can't hurt to hear us out, Melody said. She heard the sound of a chair scooting over the ancient cabin floor. She heard the sound of boots clonking back and forth as the captain paced the room a couple of times. Fine, you may enter. Melody pushed the door open and found Captain Farkle leaning against a beam and staring out one of the rear windows of the cabin. He cut a stately silhouette against the sunset, which set the western horizon ablaze. She used to be glorious, Captain said. She used to cut through the water with magnificence, a stately hat upon the ocean's infinite head. Now she's been reduced to a broken-down vessel. Her aged maples cankered with insects... Her bilges rot with the slough of brine cancer, and her engines have suffered their final fate, fully incapacitated without hope of resurrection, all from age and hard living. Are you referring to the filthy vicar or to yourself? Melody said, stepping into the cabin. The other members of Blunderbust had followed her, taking tentative places near the door. Captain Farkle shot Melody in a scance glance. She still has plenty of life in her, and you do too, Melody said. What is so important that you feel the need to interrupt my solitary time? I have a proposal. The captain smiled and issued a little sarcastic laugh all at once. He gestured for the band to sit down on a collection of oddly compiled chairs. He sat on a voluminous throne-like chair behind his desk and hooked one leg up over one of its arms. Let's hear this proposal. Melody cleared her throat. <clears throat> have you ever heard of the Greased Beast? I have not it's a rock and roll venue, a decommissioned United States Navy Eagle-class patrol ship. A narcissist named Mikey Musculari purchased her several years ago from a salvage yard, had her outfitted with modern restaurant equipment, put in several dining rooms with nautical-themed decor, three stages, and state-of-the-art lighting and PA equipment. He had her permanently moored near Grand Ferry Park 35 minutes from the Brooklyn Marine Terminal up the East River. Now that you mention it, I think I've seen that old girl at port thought she was a junk heap owned by some hoarder. Much the contrary. The Greased Beast is one of the most sought-after venues in the rock and roll community. My band, she glanced over her shoulder at Dusty and Barry, <laughs> my old band, Skinning Tuesday, used to play there whenever we toured the East Coast. What's your point? Mikey Musculari has made the Greased Beast into an elitist snob house. He picks and chooses the bands who play there based on his own opinion of musical purity. He only books acts that are firmly seated in the rock and roll mainstream, acts that people of his caliber don't really like. It's more about being seen liking them than actually having any passion for the music. 
I think it's time that the greased beast gets some competition. Maybe the filthy vicar has seen her last voyage. Maybe it's time to decommission her as an ocean-going vessel and recommission her as the premier maritime party venue. I mean, look at her. Melody knocked on one of the walls. She's strong. She's beautiful. She's antique. She's fully square-rigged. People would die for a ticket to come to a concert on her decks. Captain Frank Farkle leaned in his chair toward Melody. I don't know anything about running a concert venue. That's where we come in. We know everything there is about drawing an audience. I know tons of bands who would love to play the Filthy Vicar. Bands that are big audiences. I think you made enough money on that last haul to have the renovations done. We'll help you outfit the ship with everything it needs to become New York's hottest party venue. Captain Farkle rose from his throne, put his hands behind his back, and paced back and forth across his cabin. The three musicians followed him as he thought through Melody's proposal. And what do you want out of this little venture? He asked, continuing to pace. We'd want a standing gig at the Filthy Vicar. No matter how sought after she becomes, we'd want the Filthy Vicar to remain a venue for the masses. You'd have to keep your mind open to up-and-coming acts rather than just hiring established bands. Well, I've always kept my eye out for the mongrel, the captain said. He stroked his stubbled chin with one of his rough hands. He tilted his head this way, then that, as if entertaining conflicting arguments in his head. He turned to the musicians, squaring on them and putting his hands behind his back. You have a deal. Gentlemen and ladies, with your help and my loot, let's make this into the most sought-after maritime rock and roll venue in all of history. Melody, Barry, and Dusty smiled. There's still the problem of how we get back to New York, Barry said. Captain Farkle raised a finger. Lad, she shall hit the port of authority of New York and New Jersey in her full glory. As your beautiful singer has said, she's fully square-rigged and ready to sail. Follow me. Captain Farkle, a bounce returning to his step, led the musicians out of the captain's cabin onto the spar deck, where they found the crew in various states of lethargy. The ship's tasks were getting done, but by slower hands. Since the engines had coughed up their last turn of pistons, the tone among the crew had changed to one of defeatism. Look lively, lads and lasses, the captain said as he hit the deck. The seamen and women snapped up, digging into their tasks with more fervor. And where would Mr. Quick be? Here, sir, Mr. Quick said from the quarter deck. Captain Farkle wheeled around and looked up at his first mate. Our engines may be kaput, but we still have sail. Unfurl the sheets and make way for the port of New York. Once we're underway, we'll conference in my cabin about the future of the filthy vicar. Aye, sir, Adam Quick said with a salutary nod. Captain Farkle turned to the musicians. Join me on the quarterdeck. You'll not want to miss this. He led them up the eight-rung ladder to the higher deck. The ship turned into an ant pile of working men and women under Captain Farkle's orders. He spoke his commands to Adam Quick, who shouted them at the crew. Key midshipmen repeated the orders fore and aft, and all hands bent their sweating backs into the work. Seamen climbed the rat lines and masts to the furled sails. One by one, the sheets dropped, and sailors below trimmed their lines. The wheelmen adjusted the rudder in symmetry with the sails, and the filthy vicar came about until she reached the captain's ordered bearings. Once in position, men and women towed the lines until the wind filled the sheets, and the ship cut forward into the surf at a speed the musicians hadn't expected. Once underway, the crew cheered. The old accordion player came out of nowhere with his concertina and went into a well-oiled shanty. A few sailors joined in, 
lending their voices to the chorus. Soon the shanty spread across all decks and up the rat lines, making the ship into a moving celebration. After two weeks' sail, the filthy vicar came to its moorings in the enormous covered warehouse where Blunderbusted had first begun their extended ocean-going engagement. Captain Farkle had announced to the crew his intentions of turning the ship into a rock-and-roll venue during the journey. He'd also announced that no hand would be left without employment at the new venue. At first, a sense of unsettled wariness came over the crew. But over time, as the men and women of the Filthy Vicar thought and talked about the idea of converting her decks into saloons and bringing in live entertainment, they became supportive of Captain Farkle's vision. Renovations of the ship began immediately with a series of closed meetings with architects, interior decorators, contracts, and marketing firms. Captain Farkle ordered that everything be kept secret until opening day, which he had set for September 19th. Blunderbust had used some of their profits to tour the East Coast during the renovations, but kept in contact with Captain Farkle, with conference calls and frequent visits to check in on construction. Under Captain Farkle's watch, everything stayed on schedule and in budget. Under Melody Blackheart's supervision, the Filthy Vickers marketing team began a mid-year, broad-reaching campaign that involved nautical teasers, billboards, television, and radio spots. She employed Blunderbusted's agent, Charlie Biscuit, as a liaison between the venue and A&R men with major labels. Charlie also headed up a campaign to put the new venue on the maps of major entertainment management agencies. By the time opening day came, the public anticipated the unveiling of what many were saying would be the next launching pad venue for up-and-coming bands. On the evening of September 19th, curious fans who had purchased advance tickets lined the docks outside the newly renovated Riverside Warehouse. Captain Farkle had ordered a platform built on the dock where he and other key players could address the crowd. In the early evening's waning light, he, Melody, Blackheart, Barry Guns, and Dusty Cannons mounted the platform before a large audience of applauding onlookers. Captain Farkle moved up to the rostrum, fixed to the front of the stage, and tapped on its microphone. The tapping thunk through a massive PA system he had installed outside the venue. We appreciate you joining us on this historic day. My name is Frank Farkle, captain of a ship known as the Filthy Vicar. The crowd cheered. Thanks to an aggressive marketing campaign, the ship's name had become a household word. This ship, she has a rich history. She was first built nearly 300 years ago and has seen many a swarthy captain take her helm. Her decks have been trod upon by a million ocean-going men and women. We have decided that it is high time that we share her with you. The crowd cheered again, anxious to enter the over-river storage facility and get a look at the new venue. And so it is with great pride that I give you the hottest new venue on the East Coast, the Filthy Ficker. Someone cued the music. The clank and thud of alternative nautical rock and roll thunk through the PA system, a piece of music that Blunderbusted had composed specifically for the event. The facing wall of the warehouse came apart in the middle. The enormous panels retracted on an automated tracking system. Foot by foot, the filthy vicar came into view, permanently seated to the dock, a wide gangway running up to her spar deck. 
Her masts and yards have been outfitted with neon. Nets of microlights cascaded down from the yards, making a network of pinprick star sails. All of the lights flicked on at once, and the crowd burst into a volley of new noise. Ushers permitted the crowd into the warehouse. Attendees gawked as they walked up the gangway onto the deck, overcome by the beauty of the newly restored ship. In minutes, the decks above and below were flooded with people ready to party. The quarterdeck had been converted into the venue's largest of four stages. Two voluminous drum sets sat side by side, ready to make noise. Each kit boasted at least 20 pieces of percussion, kicks, snares, toms, temple blocks, congas, timbales, gongs, and every other manner of percussion that could be imagined. A green room had been constructed at the back of the stage, which also acted as an upstage backdrop. Melody, Barry, and Dusty sat in the green room. Barry tapped out a rhythm on a short bar stool with a pair of drumsticks. Dusty warmed up her wrists with a series of stretching exercises. Melody ran through a few exercises to warm up her vocal cords. A trap door opened in the floor of the green room and up came Charlie Biscuit, wearing an off-white linen suit and bow tie. How y'all feeling? He asked as he mounted the deck, closed the hatch behind him. You ready to rock? We were born ready. Barry said, continuing to drum on the bar stool. I just wanted to make a point of coming back here and thank you for keeping me on. It's been quite a run and I appreciate you not putting me out to pasture. Are you kidding? Dusty said. You're the one who had faith in us when no one else did. Were you able to clear up your business with those boys at the snake pit? Barry asked. Charlie looked over both shoulders. You don't see tall, wedge-shaped, and Hawaiian behind me, do you? Both Barry and Dusty chuckled. Look, tonight's your night. Go out and knock them dead. A voice came over the PA outside the green room, deep and energetic. Who here is ready to rock, pirate style? The crowd exploded into a stomping, screaming, whistling frenzy. Well, that's good, because we have for you tonight on the maiden voyage of the Filthy Vicar, the band who made all of this possible. Please welcome to the stage, Blunderbusted. That's your cue, Charlie said, moving to the green room exit. Allow me. He opened the door. Blunderbusted hit the quarter deck in a shrill of cheering. Barry and Dusty mounted their custom drum sets. Melody stepped up to the microphone. Barry kicked the show off with the opening groove of their breaking hit. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, blood for blood. The crowd broke into dancing, overcome by the music and by the new venue. Blunderbusted played a three-hour show the first of many they would perform on the quarterdeck of the world-famous maritime rock and roll venue, The Filthy Vicar, a venue that would never forget the mongrel. This has been... Blunderbusted, Part 4 of 4, written and performed by me, Craig Nibo. For today's song, I offer another glimpse into the world of chops. I'm lucky enough to have a second song by Skinning Tuesday. Unfortunately, Melody Blackheart had left the band to join Blunderbusted before Skinning recorded this hit. Nevertheless, I give you Snorri the Skull Splitter and Skinning Tuesday performing their disjointed classic, Wait a Minute Now. I started down and under. 
hope you've enjoyed the conclusion of Blunderbusted, a nautical rock and roll adventure. It's been an incredible journey watching these characters evolve and witnessing the birth of the filthy Vicar rock and roll venue. But fear not, this is only the start of many tales I have in store. I want to extend my heartfelt gratitude to all of you for joining me aboard ship for this nautical adventure. Your support and enthusiasm keep the wind in this podcast's sails. Now it's time to brace yourself because in the next episode, I plan to impart a particularly terrifying yarn destined to get those teeth of yours chattering. Mark your calendars, set your reminders, and stay tuned for more thrilling stories. This is Craig Nibo signing off. I bid you sweet dreams, or should I say, sweet nightmares. This has been the Terrifying Lies Podcast. Please come again. You're welcome here. If you like the Terrifying Lies podcast, I encourage you to share it and write a positive review or at least rate it with the highest number of stars possible.